But then came a moment. I thought, you know, it's not often that you get to participate really in the founding of a new industry, right? How, how often do you get that? You just don't. So I didn't know if I was going to be any good at it. I didn't know if I was going to like it. There was a huge amount of negative pressure. So I took a, sab a sabbatical year, which I had coming to me, and helped a colleague from MIT start a company. And I had no idea how it was going to go, right? I just, I had not a clue. But what I discovered was that, A, I really liked it. I really liked the practicality of the science I was doing. This wasn't just a matter of writing a grant saying, some someday in the not foreseeable future, the basic science I'm doing might have an impact on human health. But I, I was much closer to actually making that happen, like it or not. And I just, I liked it and I was decent enough at it that I just thought, I'm just, I'm not going to look for that tenured position anymore. I'm going to just cast my lot with this first generation of biotech companies that were being started. And that's how I ended up at Biogen. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their Unlock Moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to a very special episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. One of the reasons why I love the world of ballroom dancing is because it connected me with an amazing global network of friends who, off the dance floor, come from all walks of life. Almost 20 years ago, I met my wife Mildred through dancing, and through Mildred, I met today's guest and a very good friend over many years, Vicky Sato. When she's not competing in and winning pro-am dance competitions with her professional partner, Nazar, Vicky is a world leader in the field of pharmaceuticals and biotech. She's been fascinated by the interface of science and entrepreneurship for a long time. Having started out as an academic scientist at Harvard, she transitioned into the biotech industry with future stars of the sector Biogen and Vertex where she spent 25 years helping to lead great teams, making medicines and building companies. Together, those two businesses are now worth over $100 billion. Later, Vicky returned to Harvard to become a professor, teaching both science and entrepreneurship at Harvard University and Harvard Business School. She met a lot of talented young and less young people, and mentoring young entrepreneurs remains something she loves to do. She served as a corporate director of major companies such as Bristol-Myers Squibb and Borg Warner and growing companies in cool areas of science such as Denali, Virbio, and Allogene. Molecules and therapeutics developed under her leadership have become critical treatments for HIV, cystic fibrosis, inflammation, multiple sclerosis, and hepatitis C. In her latest adventure, she is learning about and contributing to science and public policy by serving on President Biden's Council of Advisors for Science and Technology, PCAST, and the Committee on Science, Technology, and the Law, for the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. 
She's the first guest I've had on the Unlock Moment who has her own page on the White House website. I'm looking forward to digging in a little to Vicky's journey to understand the Unlock Moments of remarkable clarity that guided her path. And I'm always fascinated to hear her wise take on finding intentional balance to shape a life you love and that connects deeply with your values and purpose. Vicky Sato, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Gary, it's delightful to be here. We've been trying to set this up for a bit, and I'm glad that technology has finally enabled us to connect. I'm so delighted that we can pull this all together. Now, as a fellow dancer, maybe we start with balance. I know you've been on a journey over recent years to intentionally design how you spend your time. What did you learn along the way in that journey? Well, so it's funny you should decide to start with balance because it's something I've been thinking about more and more. And I think, you know, throughout my professional career, this theme, especially for professional women of work-life balance is, um, it's a theme that keeps coming up and maybe we can come back to that at, at some point. But more recently on the dance floor, the, the necessity, the essentiality of balance for success as you know, and as Mildred knows, is just a fundamental component. And I hadn't realized how important physical balance in successful dancing has become to me until I've discovered that more and more of my conversations with my coaches and partners centers around the fact that if I don't feel on balance, I can't do anything. I, I just, I mean, you can do things obviously, but, but one's confidence, one's freedom of movement, the extent of movement. If if I don't feel balanced, nothing else really works to its full extent. So it's funny that you should start there with, with balance because I've been thinking about that concept of physical balance more and more in the context of, of life balance. So I'd just say in response to your question, yeah, balance is pretty key. I'm not sure I really have articulated or appreciated that in the literal sense until recently, which of course is one of the wonderful ways in which dance informs life and life informs dance, I think. I think so. And one of the things that the more I think about balance in coaching and in leadership is there's a thing in, in dance that the dancers know, you only find the freedom when you're exactly on balance, you're perfectly on balance, because then or your muscles can relax and you stay in the place that you want to be. It's not good enough to be quite close to balance. It's not good enough to be almost on balance. You need to be on balance. And when I work with people in coaching and in leadership, that same thing is true. People say, oh, it's a bit better than it was before, but I still feel constrained. And actually, I think you have to be really committed to finding balance and find something that you're really comfortable with. I know we had a conversation quite recently where you were talking about talking to some of your peers about finding balance. And you've been on a journey of of really sort of setting out your your time and thinking about what you want from all the elements of what you do to find something that really works for you. And, and I know that you've been really committed to that journey. When you look back to maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, knowing what you know now, what changed in that journey to get you to a place where now you feel that balance you didn't feel before? Well, well, that's a that's a pretty profound question, Gary. I don't know that I have an answer. I don't know that I have an answer. <laughs> I don't know that I have an answer at the ready. <laughs> and I will say to you that that um, you've been a big part of a big part of my finding 
finding a new poise, if you will. But I think that in order to find and achieve balance, one first of all has to come to some recognition, literal recognition of how important balance is, whether it's balance in life. You know, athletes know this, and it's always about, you know, keeping the weight over the balls of your feet and all of this, you know, the, the statement of preparedness. And as you say, if you're on balance, perfectly on balance, then your reach, your effectiveness, your ease is just greater. But it's not a word that gets used very much in the setting of science or management, for that matter. And I think this is something uh, maybe you should be exploring, which is that balance as an explicit concept and goal could become a very different sort of management tool hmm. and, and self-actualization tool actually if you if if you get to that. So I think I went off I think I went off the rails here on the question. But I think what you say is really is really true. And something that I think about when I'm working with particularly senior leaders in in finding it, it's hard for them to stop. It's hard for them to switch off. It's hard for them to find the balance outside of work because they've got their own pressure their own demands, the demands of society, the demands of people around them. And I keep seeing people saying, I really mean to change my balance. I really mean to find space for life outside of work, spend more time with my children, but I never quite get there. You know, and there's something about being able to say no, being able to be more choiceful, if choiceful is a word, about how you spend your time. So you're this description, I think, is very informative. I apologize for the fact that my dog is barking in the background, but there's nothing I can do about that. I can't. If I lock him up, he'll bark more. So you're just going to have to damp out the noise. I think so many of us, and I think this is true for me as well, think about balance as an accident, right? That that we're buffeted by events, we're buffeted by relationships, by children, by competitiveness, by luck, whatever we want to call it, and and we think about balance as something that happens out of our control you know that that oh you know in this moment i'm on balance whether you're hitting a tennis ball or, or or whatever and i think i thought about balance in dance like this that oh sometimes i'm on balance and sometimes i'm not <laughs> as opposed to thinking about balance as as a goal that actually has parameters so physically, we understand what it means to be on balance, whether, you know, when we visualize people on tight ropes or on a balance beam or, or whatever, and you, you have a poise that is not actually static, that, that actually requires real work to stay on balance. And we don't think about that as a management tool or as a life tool. So, you know, in my advanced age, I feel like, oh, here's a new insight that you know people say well what do you want to be when you grow up or how do you want to develop from where you are to where you want to be professionally and and we all have a long list of things that we want to be and things that we're deficit in or things that we think are unappreciated but i don't think i've ever said or have heard anybody ever say i'm looking for balance i hear a lot of people complaining about the absence of work-life balance but again it's something that you might stumble on if you're lucky so so I think asking oneself, what does what does balance mean? Because, you know, we're on balance every day as we walk down the street. 
what does balance mean? What does it mean physically? And how do we translate that physical experience to a set of living principles, right? Career planning principles, work principles, whatever, whatever you want. Because I think they're not, I think they're not unrelated. And balance is very personal. What makes me feel unbalanced and what I have to do to achieve balance is not going to be the same for you or for somebody else. There's a very personal descriptor. I love this conversation. And it makes me think of something where the best dancers in the world, and you know this, look, whether they're ballroom dancers or they're ballet dancers or they're contemporary dancers, look so light, look so light, look so effortless. If you're able to stop them in that moment of balance and feel like what it feels to be them or feel how their bodies and their muscles and their limbs are working, you realize there's a huge amount of work going on to create that sense of lightness and effortlessness. But when you watch, you'd imagine that they're completely relaxed. And actually, they're not completely relaxed. There's a tone, there's a work in there, and that's what you're talking to. And I I think that was one of the most profound moments in my own dancing training was that I needed to work five times harder to find and stay on balance because I was imagining that I could just arrive there in this fully relaxed state and stay in that place of balance without putting any work in at all. And I think that now more in, in the sort of the leadership context, I think the same is true that people imagine it's, it's a place they arrive. It's just a sort of, it's just a thing. But actually when you think, no, I have to do work to arrive in balance, to stay in balance. I think that's a really helpful way to, to think about it. It's a fascinating conversation. Now we've known each other a long time, but I don't know much about your personal journey. So Vicky, what do we need to know about your story to understand the person you've become today? And where should we start in that journey? I don't know. Well, I'll, let's let's continue to riff on this theme of, of balance. And somewhere here, I'm going to fold in another concept that I learned from you, actually. Um, because as you described, your description of my career is, an, is extremely accurate. It, it has been a an unexpected journey of starting out as a scientist and starting out as a scientist in the field of biology, where if one were going to be a high-performing scientist in biology, the career path was fairly straightforward. That is to say, you became an academic, being a professor, a teacher, a, a researcher, but in an academic setting that's coupled with advancing the state of knowledge and in training people to do more of the same. So. There's a whole other story about why did I end up doing that, but it, it had been an aspiration from a long time. From you know, I was a kid that played with a microscope in a in a nerdy weird weird way, so I ended up pursuing a path through university and graduate school to become an academic scientist, and that meant I was going to be an academic researcher. So I was I was doing all the things you're supposed to do when you do that, which is find a field of research that you find rewarding or popular or valued or whatever. Um, doing work in it, doing first postdoctoral work, and then looking for a, a young faculty position on tenured, and then striving for tenure and all this stuff. And I was studying very basic concepts in understanding how the immune response worked. And it was a time in science when, stimulated a lot by key laboratories in, in the UK, we were understanding really, really fundamental things about how the immune system worked. And, and 
a few years ago, as I was cleaning out the bookshelf, I I ran across the textbook that I used in college in cell biology, and I just opened it up to you know the section on, on the immune response, which was not very long. And it said, well, the, here's a picture of lymphocytes. Lymphocytes are white blood cells, and they're believed to do something that's important for immune protection, but we don't really understand what. <laughs> and that wasn't that long ago, because I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> and I realized how far the science has come. But what was exciting about doing academic research in immunology at the time was that the questions were pretty fundamental. So I ran a laboratory at Harvard with grad students and with postdoctoral fellows, and we were studying, under, trying to understand something about how the immune response evolved and, and how it regulated itself. And I was looking forward to what an academic career was going to be, which meant at some point my work had to be good enough to merit tenure someplace, and then I would, you know, have job security forever and ever. Then in the late 70s, this recombinant DNA was invented, right? The ability to move genes from one organism to another, so that the technology in its most basic sense, we were able to understand enough about the universality of the genetic code to, to realize that in principle, it should be possible to get human genes or mouse genes or giraffe genes or whatever to come under the control of bacterial regulators. It's almost like saying that you can, you can send the French army out to be governed by Italian generals. Inconceivable, right? But if the language is universal, then that should work. And, and sure enough, scientists at Sanford were able to do that incredibly fundamental experiment to show that you can drive human genes under the control of bacterial control signals. And this, this opened up now a, a crazy time in history when we started to think, oh my God, instead of laboriously purifying molecules from biological fluids, which could take years of a grad student's life, we could make kilotons of human insulin inside of bacteria the same way that you might, or yeast, the same way you make beer. And so now they're opened up for biologists, a commercial opportunity. And by commercial, I mean a use for their science that could be valued in real conventional economic terms in the same way that physicists and chemists had already experienced. Whether you're, you're using physical understanding to make energy for good or bad purposes, whether you're using the principles of chemistry to make plastics or um, other useful molecules that suddenly chemists and physicists were able to live in the world of academia, but also in the world of industry and in the the making of products of economic use. So biologists never did that. If you wanted to be a practical biologist, you went to medical school like you did. So the practical output of biology was kind of medicine, which is really a very different thing entirely, I think. Um, but now there was actually at least the glimmer of an idea that biology could become not just a, an observational science where we tried to understand things, but could actually become a synthetic science where you could make things that were useful. And my colleagues in the department at Harvard were playing around with this idea, and a couple of them were bold enough to go and start companies in their spare time, so to speak. And I was still beavering away teaching undergraduates and doing work. But then came a moment where, as is always true in these things, there's the push and the pull. And the push in my case was 
there was one woman tenured at Harvard in the biological sciences. <laughs> and it was extremely unlikely that I was going to be woman number two in the 40-year history of Harvard. So I realized that that was un unlikely to come to pass. So I was looking around. I was looking, looking at other universities for positions. I was interviewing for positions and thinking about what did I, what did I want to do? Where did I want to do it? It was a, you know, do I want to live there? Do I want to move there? What am I going to do about this relationship that I'm in with somebody where, you know, he's got to find a job too. And so, you know, balance emerges. But the pull was that the more I talked to my colleagues who were experimenting in this field of biotechnology, I thought, you know, it's not often that you get to participate really in the founding of a new industry, right? How, how often do you get that? You just don't. And so I didn't know if I was going to be any good at it. I didn't know, didn't know if I was going to like it. There was a huge amount of negative pressure to stay in academia because industry was viewed as a sort of a gamma activity. And so I took a, a sabbatical year, which I had coming to me and helped a colleague from MIT start a company. And I had no idea it was going to go, right? I just, I had not a clue. But what I discovered was that, A, I really liked it. I really liked the practicality of the science I was doing. This wasn't just a matter of writing a grant saying some someday in the not foreseeable future, the basic science I'm doing might have an impact on human health. But I, I was much closer to actually making that happen, like it or not. And I liked it. And I was decent enough at it that I just thought, I'm just, I'm not going to look for that tenured position anymore. I'm going to just cast my lot with this first generation of biotech companies that were being started. And that's how I ended up at Biogen. So there's something about the kind of the thrill of the of the uncertainty of the of the we're the first people to try and do something. It might not work, but I want to be a part of that. Right. Because that opportunity doesn't happen often. And I think I surprised myself a little bit about being willing to take the risk because there was a lot of negative feedback about you're going to ruin your career if you do this, you'll never get a job at a decent university, so forth and so on. So it was a little bit of you know being cast out on, on the seas. And it took a while to settle down, find a different kind of poise. But I've never regretted it for a moment because the the way of doing science in this kind of setting, which I find much more purpose-driven, if you will, in a practical sense, also much more collaborative. You're not a lone scientist beavering away at something you against the elements, which is its own thrill, right? It's, it's, that is its own thrill. But the community of people working to solve a problem and to make something useful, in this case, medically useful, was thrilling for me. And so I was really lucky, lucky that this industry was happening at this time in my career when I was young enough to take a chance on it. And, and I congratulate myself on having the wit to, um, to step off the edge and take a chance. And fast forward a few decades, the biotech industry, the pharma industry has progressed science massively over that period of time. And then suddenly in 2020, a global pandemic hits where you need all of those scientists to solve a problem very quickly that nobody's had to solve before. What's your take on the COVID pandemic and the role 
you and teams you're involved with were able to play as part of that journey. So thank you for bringing that up because I was talking to a, a colleague over the weekend, actually a couple of days ago, and we were saying it is amazing how the world doesn't understand what it took to provide us with vaccines and treatments and diagnostics in the period of time that we did. Everybody just is drumming their fingers and tapping their feet and saying, why isn't this done, right? It's, and as quickly have forgotten the impact that it's had. Right, so so now people are just bitching about the fact that we might have to wear masks again as the new strain. And what, why hasn't science done something about this? So thank you for asking that. And I'm going to make a couple of tedious points. <laughs> one is just a fact, which is that one of the companies that I work, that I helped found and work with, Veer Biotechnology, was one of those companies that literally in the course of 16 months devised and tested a monoclonal antibody, which was approved for use in the treatment of COVID-19 infections and, and was shown to confer over 90% protection against hospitalization and death. So I was pretty proud of being part of that and, and of and of the mobilization of a group of young scientists for whom, for many, this was their first job to actually do this. So that's a factoid. The other is almost the complement of that, which is we think about the mRNA vaccines, which have now become the, the backbone of most vaccinology for COVID. And the big concern is, oh, this technology is so new. It hasn't been tested. It's not safe. I, I don't know, that's, you know, like some crazy scientist invented this in his or her garage, and I can't possibly subject myself or my loved ones to this because it's so, how could you make anything that fast? Well, ironically, of course, as we know with the granting of the Nobel Prize this year to the, the early inventors of mRNA technology, this technology has been in discovery and development for decades. Um, Moderna and BioNTech, the two young companies who really pioneered making mRNA science into a product, into a commercially, economically, medically valuable product from exciting science. They've been working on this technology for over a decade. So this was not an overnight success. They were, but as Einstein, I believe, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. That they'd been working on this technology, thinking about solving other problems. COVID appears they and others realize that the technology has the potential to treat this disease and to protect against the disease. And in a matter of months, mobilize the forces to actually generate and test a completely new molecular approach to making vaccines. And unbelievably, it works. It, it works beyond anybody's expectation. And I think that is a melodramatic exemplar of what advances in biological sciences has enabled. And we can wring our hands about how we haven't cured cancer yet and we haven't cured Alzheimer's disease, but these are much more complex problems. But infectious diseases have been killing us successfully for the last several millennia, and they will do it again. So our ability to mobilize this kind of technology against the diseases of the future, as well as the diseases of the present, is phenomenal. And we couldn't do it, could not do it without the fundamental discoveries in biological sciences that's been going on for the last 35 years now. And just put into context, pre-COVID, what was a normal timeline to create 
the kind of treatments oh. that were deployed on COVID? Decades. I mean, the people who developed the papillomavirus vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine, you know, they labored on a much more conventional timeline for decades before you would, 10 years was a good number, right? And I think even the last time we saw this kind of rapidity of medical impact was probably the polio vaccine, or even that took years compared to, to this. So as much as we decry the the confusion and the chaos and the lack of leadership from governments around the world, your country and my country included, this medical impact for COVID could not have happened actually without an effective and dare I say balanced collaboration between the public and the private sectors. Just, just wouldn't have happened. I mean, look, we're, we're still 40 years later, still trying to make a vaccine for HIV. Again, it's not because we don't we don't have principles about how to do that. It's because it's a, a complex disease and is continuing to evade our best efforts. But we haven't had the kind of focused warp speed Manhattan Project, whatever image you want to bring to mind for, for that, as as we had the wit to have. Thank goodness for COVID. So it's an exciting time now for entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs coming into the biotech space and the opportunity ahead is is high is being an, a biotech entrepreneur different from being a non-biotech entrepreneur do you think yes and no i, I think entrepreneurship demands a level of risk taking a tolerance for failure a sheer bloody mindedness about wanting to make something happen that hasn't happened before that's shared across different kinds of endeavors I think two features that differentiate entrepreneurship in the life sciences have to do with economic principles you know well. One is the cost of capital. These are making a medicine or making a vaccine. These kinds of products take a long time. And at the end of the day, after the molecules have been invented or discovered or whatever, they need to be tested in human settings we understand very little about human variability and, and how that's affected. So the testing uh, of these molecules in a medical setting is very, very expensive. And people have batted around numbers like a trillion dollars, you know, in direct cost, it, it's not, but it's this is not something you do in a garage with three people. This is an enterprise that's gonna cost you tens to hundreds of millions of dollars to get to the finish line. And it's going to require, if not a village, a decent cadre of people with disparate talents and skills. So. The, the sheer, the magnitude of the effort in time and in cost is quite different. Uh, I think from, you know, you, you can make an app in your garage. You can't make a drug in the same way. And, and the other is, is the, the high rate of failure and the cost of failure. So we are not proud of the fact that the success rate from the moment of, I think I'd like to treat this disease to actually having a drug that treats that disease, in addition to being decades in the making, you will fail a hundred times for the, the one success you get. And that kind of failure rate is not easily tolerated in a venture-backed financial setting. You know, entrepreneurs get backed by professional venture investors, they get backed by friends and family, they get backed by um, nonprofit organizations that are, are committed to a cause. But the 
the durability of that capital and the amount of that capital coupled with the risk makes entrepreneurship in the life sciences a somewhat different fish. It's a fascinating space to, to be in. Now, I hold you up as a bit of an exemplar of somebody who is always open to jumping into new things that might not be your, your sort of core expertise. And in recent years, one of those things has been to join the White House Science and Technology Committee. I'd love to get a sense of how it felt for you to walk through the doors for the first time and sit down to think about questions that might be outside of your core expertise of pharma and biotech. How did you face into that? Well, first of all, I'll say that I don't, I don't want to get into politics here, but, but the last administration in the United States, the one that got its, you know, that was there when COVID was rearing its, its head, was not what I would call a science-friendly administration. And the United States, like many countries, have had episodes of science-phobic and science-philic administrations. That's the nature of the beast. But this one had been particularly incoherent with regard to its respect for science. And I think a lot of the work got done, personal view, in spite of that. So when you have a president who is actively science-philic and poses key questions for a group of scientists to address that are fundamental, ranging from rebuilding public health systems to, to maintaining American competitiveness to, to addressing issues of climate change and extreme extreme weather, when that call comes, you don't say, I have to think about it, right? You you step up because if people actually think you have something to contribute, then you can't. I mean, I, I just felt like I know nothing about this. This is kind of a scary level of responsibility. But I can't say I can't say no. Right. So so there's a sense of responsibility and of of duty, if you will, but also a, a real curiosity. And and I think. You know, I'll I'll toss this back at you because when you and I started working together on the, you know, what am I going to do for my, how do I manage my retirement? Because when you know, when, you, when I say those words to people, they look at me like I'm like, what are you talking about? We sort of uncovered the fact that learning new things is a driver for me. I, on some level, I'd always known that, but I'd never really brought it to the front of my brain. And I realized that a big part of my willingness to take this risk, such as it is or to step into this opportunity, was that I knew that I was going to learn a lot, right? That I may be incapable of making contributions, but I'd learn how to make contributions. And I'd learn a lot of new things from a lot of really smart people who do things that got nothing to do with what I do on a, on a daily basis. So this, the, the press of responsibility and the lure of learning made it a pretty easy yes. Although they, I, I must say, this is not one of those situations. Most people call you up and say, or call me up and say, look, we'd really like you to help us out on this or that, or join this and that, or be on this. And and, and don't worry, it's not going to take a lot of your time. <laughs> I'm sure people have said this to you. Mm -hmm. Gary, what you said on our board and help us, I, I probably, mm -hmm. this group said, um, and it's going to take a lot of your time. <laughs> and, and so we want to make sure that you're able to create the bandwidth necessary to do that. And all of that is true. It does take a lot of time. It's completely worth it. And at this stage of the game, when I have the luxury of making choices about what I do, I don't, it's not satisfying to me 
to be kind of skin deep. And what's what's interesting is actually to be able to dig in and feel like the work you're doing is making a difference. And that you don't do that, you know, in an hour a week. It's just not the way it works. And I appreciated that. I appreciated that it was a significant contribution. It was going to require a significant effort. And it's that all of that's been true. And I have to say that the return to me as an individual and as a productive member of society has been tremendous. Just I, I just I've been learning so much and I view the world differently. Amazing. Last question. If there are people listening to this conversation at any stage of their career and they're resonating with this idea of needing to find better balance, what would you say to them in terms of where to start on that journey of finding that control of, of their life and career? Well, I, well, you put me on the spot. I don't know that I have a recipe for this. I don't think I do have a recipe. But I'd throw, I, 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 I'll toss back maybe just a couple of concepts, right? One is you have to recognize that balance is not something that just happens. There's a skill set. There are muscles that you need to train to help you get on balance and help you stay on balance. So it is, you've got to decide that it's a goal and why it's a goal. And I, I do believe that if you're on balance, however we choose to find that, which means a certain steadiness of poise, that you can do so much more, right? It's, it's like if you're standing on solid ground, you can do more than if you're standing on one of those crazy balance balls or whatever, um, where your goal is to find your, your muscular balance. So first, you have to define for yourself what balance looks and feels like to you. What does that mean? And you've got to decide that that's something you want to achieve. Some people like being off balance, right? They, they, I, I, they like the uncertainty of it. Um, so you've got to value it. The, the second is that it's not static. And I think this we learned from dancing, or this I've learned from dancing, is because I'm always saying, oh, I don't feel like I'm, I'm on balance. Nazar will say, well, balance is a dynamic thing. You, you know, you dance is movement. You, you're on balance is because you're making those micro changes in your body as you move to allow you to be on balance, even though the environment's changing, right? So, so to get a work, it's not, it's not a static thing. Balance in our lives requires recognition, reaction, adjustment, all these things. So it's, it's dynamic. And I think the most important thing is that it's enabling. I mean, you talked earlier about when you see people that are unbalanced, they look light. And I would add to that, they, they look like they're not straining, but they also look really quite grounded. And I think about this sometimes when I, my, my husband's a real basketball fanatic and he's made me a, a, a fan of professional basketball. And, and when you watch the greats, you know the ones that are unbalanced, right? Even though they're 10 feet in the air, dunking a ball from an improbable position, they started from a position of balance. They're they're managing their limbs in a way that is on You watch Michael Jordan do these dunk contests and he's light and propelling himself up, but he's also incredibly, you don't have a feeling of flimsiness. You have a feeling of weight and content and mass. And I think as we think about our lives and as we think about how we how whether we're managing home and work or you know five kids or no kids or whatever that when things are on balance you feel 
steady, right? You, you feel like you can, you, you feel like you can react to the unexpected with confidence and skill. And you can't do that if you're not on balance. Everything's too fragile. Everything is too fragile. So I, I just, it's, it's so interesting that you should start with this today because I've just been thinking over the last stretch about how balance needs to be more purposeful, more purposefully defined and designed into people's lives. I say I knew we should have you on the podcast. Thank you, Vicky. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For former Harvard professor Vicky Sato, it was following her instincts and making intentional choices in the foundation of a new industry that enabled her to find true balance in life and in leadership. Vicky, thank you so much for telling your story, sharing your wisdom, and for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure, as always. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.